misunderstood. Yeah. Some say that he's up to no good around the neighborhood. Revolve your information. A lot of my brothers got education. Now check it. You got your Wall Street brother. Your blue collar brother. You're down for whatever chilling on the corner brother. My name is Lalu Davies Yemington, and you're listening to My Brother Podcast. In any industry that you see, it's the visionaries who step out and seek out problems uh, that they seek to provide solutions for. My guest today is Sean Taylor, who is a serial entrepreneur, a fantastic business person, and a great philanthropist. Sean, thank you so much for joining my brother podcast today. Pleasure to be here today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, I want to dive right into it. Mm-hmm. Tell us a bit about your background and how you, you know, from you know your birthplace to how you sort of wound up to where you are today. Okay. Um, Sean Taylor's my name. Um, was born uh, youngest of four kids in Chicago. Um, far south side, uh, uh, housing projects called Augill Gardens. It was actually Augill Murray Homes. Uh, we called it the Gardens uh, for short. Uh, it was a housing development that was built right after World War II and built specifically for black people. And we were nestled between, on the west side, a steel mill. Uh, on the east side, a major freeway. On the north side, a paint factory. Eventually, an open-air sewage treatment plant. Uh, and to the south of us was a large river that all the runoff from the steel mill would capture. So we were literally surrounded by pollution, uh, which would manifest itself decades later. Um, single mom, uh, as I said, youngest of four, and we were on welfare as far back as I can remember. And so um, I actually had a fun childhood up until the late 60s when, you know, the powder keg of racism exploded in this country, specifically with Watts and then the assassination of Martin Luther King. Um, and I guess you might even throw in there Malcolm X, who I didn't know about back then, because all we had were three channels. But, um, you know, the riots happened, uh, and it was mainly contained to the west side of Chicago. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of residents got displaced from that side of town into our neighborhood. The street gang started, uh, which back then was primarily the Blackstone Rangers and the Disciples. Um, and and all hell broke loose after that. Black Panthers kind of came on the scene a little bit later um, in our neighborhood and in Chicago. But, um, you know, we started having a lot of gang fights in the neighborhood. I can remember being sent home early from elementary school because of the threat of gang wars. Um, gangs would come up to the schools to recruit. Um, and I, you know, I tell a lot of college students, it was like fortune 500 companies coming on campus, you know, to recruit you for a job, except in that situation, you have a choice in this situation. You really didn't, um, you know, my brother who was right over me, who's deceased now, we used to sit in the, in the window on our knees at night and watch the gang shooting at each other in the courtyard. So we realized one day the sound we kept hearing going past the window was bullets, and it was it was like an aha moment. We looked at each other and go, get on the floor. Uh, yeah. So, it was an interesting childhood to say the least. I would say the thing that that benefited and probably saved our lives, not necessarily from murder, but you know, drugs and things like that. Uh, in addition to, we had a real strong mom. Was none of us went to high school in the neighborhood. Uh, the two oldest went to one school. And then the two youngest, we went to another high school. Um, and, and in both cases, we were removed from the community, I mean, a really long distance away. I had to ride three buses each way every day to get to school. And I'd leave at 6.15, 6.30 in the morning. And because I was an athlete, I wouldn't get home till 6.30, 7 o'clock at night. And so um, I had very little interaction at that point in my life with my immediate community. And so that made a huge difference for me. It, it opened up my eyes to 
what I call today unlimited possibilities. You know, I had friends, you know, who lived in homes in nice neighborhoods. Um, you know, both parents were there. Both parents worked. Uh, in some cases, their parents bought them cars, which was just unheard of. Um, and and being an athlete, you know, I was fairly good, so I started getting recruited. And that's when I started thinking about college. But before that, it was I'm going to go to high school, you know, English, math, science. I'm going to graduate, get a job, get an apartment and a car, not in my neighborhood. And I'm just going to have a good life. And to that extent, that was my whole life until I started getting involved in athletics. Um, my I played football primarily. I grew up playing baseball. And um, but my my dream sport was football, uh, primarily because when you watch sports on TV, um, you know, the football players that were black were the ones you saw the most out of the three major sports, baseball and uh, basketball being the other two. So I wanted to be a football player because uh, those were the only, quote unquote, successful black people that made good money that I'd ever seen growing up. Uh, Amazingly, much hasn't changed these days. Um, unfortunately, though, there are other options for kids in our communities. So uh, my senior year, um, uh, this professor from Purdue comes up to my high school. Uh, he is over a program that recruits, uh, at that time, primarily black students uh, for the business school at Purdue, which was started almost immediately after all the riots in 1968 by Dean Day and three other white professors at Purdue, which is a pretty amazing considering, you know, Indiana can, at least back then, was a very racist state uh, from a Ku Klux Klan standpoint. And quite frankly, still is to an extent. Um, but, you know, they recruited Dr. Bell, who was African-American, out of the Gary, Indiana school, school district. And he came up to my school. He was introduced to my counselor. And it just so happens it was parent-teacher conference day. It was in uh, early November. And when Miss Deasy, who was my counselor, was escorting him out of the building, saw my mother and my best friend's mother, who was my teammate, and uh, told Dr. Bell, well, interestingly enough, here are the parents of two of the kids that I told you about. And so I find out later that day that this man, this is on a Monday, that he's coming to our house on Sunday to talk to me about coming to Purdue. Now, I'm in the playoffs, you know, a lot of tension. We're defending champions. I could care less, right? <laughs> uh, we lose the game Saturday. My high school career is over. I'm not in a good mood. Um, and he's coming over to the house, I want to say maybe 3 o'clock, um, and I'm sitting in my mom's bedroom. So it was a two-story row apartments. And I'm just replaying everything in my head. And this Cadillac pulls up. Burgundy Cadillac, a Dandyville, four-door, white vinyl top. And this brother gets out in a London fall trench coat, three-piece suit, and a fedora hat. Now, I didn't know any of that back then. I knew he had a trench coat on, you know, because I had to wear one on Easter every year. But... Um, it shocked me because if you didn't live in my neighborhood, you did not come in because there was always a risk of you being hurt or worse, being killed. And not only did he come into my neighborhood, he drove in in a late model Cadillac. So, you know, he got my attention. And for the next couple of hours, we sat around this little kitchen table and Dr. Bell, Dr. Cornell Bell, who, you know, became like a dad to me. Um, told me about this program, but more importantly, he told me about students, current and former students of his, that looked like me and told me what they were doing professionally, things I'd never heard of. Because in my mind, I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to go major in engineering. Because that's what the council, you know, you want to be an engineer. But I, and, and this sounds horrible. I never could understand why I had to go to college for four years and learn how to drive a train. <laughs> and I share that with people because, especially young people, because they look at me today at my station and the successes I've had, and they make assumptions, you know, that I came from 
a family of privilege or middle class or whatever. I've, I've gotten into arguments with people telling me I'm lying, you know, about my, my background. And so I, I try to share that with people to let them know that I am as normal as anybody out there on the street. But where I started, I never let it dictate where I wanted to go. The, the trouble for me was, you know, I couldn't figure out long term where I wanted to go because I just didn't have the data set. I didn't know people in business. I didn't know engineers other than the guys that drove, you know, the L train in Chicago. I said, how difficult is it to push the lever forward to go forward and pull it back to stop, you know, at every station? Um, And so he told me about all these different people who came from similar backgrounds, some, you know, much better off than than where we were but did some phenomenal things in school and went on to do some phenomenal things in the workplace and how much money they were making. I thought to myself, I thought only doctors could make this kind of money. And so he got my attention right away. And he also gave me an option. And that option was I could go to college and not have to play football, which he was adamantly against. He was he was against Sports. He was having against the Greek system uh, just because he had seen so many bright students, his students in particular, who got caught up in it and forgot why they're in college. Um, And so I had a great deal of respect for that. And I graduated on a Monday in June 1978. I'm 60. And that Friday I was at Purdue University starting class on Monday. And from that moment forward, it changed the trajectory of my life. Um, you know, I had a summer internship every year, made good money, especially coming from where I came from. I mean, my first summer internship, I made more money than my mother made, and she worked at the post office. Um, and when by the time I graduated in 82, uh, I had an accounting degree, uh, and I wound up, uh, you know, graduating the top 10 percent of my class believe it or not. At Purdue. At Purdue. Um, Oh, so the high school I went to, Chicago Vocational High School, we affectionately called it CVS or the Palace, um, was a vocational high school. I majored in cabinet making. So I, and I was except, and I was exceptionally, Lalu, I was exceptionally good at it. I really loved working with wood. Um, in my senior year, one of the major projects that I did was I made a grandfather clock which I won second place in a citywide competition with that. So I was ill-prepared when I went to college. Uh, did not have the study habits. In fact, because of football and because I had such a long distance to travel, I would do my homework on the bus, primarily at night because the buses were empty, but in the morning they were jam-packed because of rush hour traffic. And if I arrived early enough at school, I'd go in the cafeteria and try to finish up. Not great study habits to carry over into a university of any type for that matter. So I was at a disadvantage starting out, failed my first exam, uh, received a D on the second one. And quite honestly, I thought about dropping out of school and and joining the military, Mm -hmm. which my two older brothers did that. because I just didn't think I had the right stuff. And fortunately, this program that I was on, the business opportunity program, we call it BOP, um, the sole purpose of this was to create a network. We had either 35 or 37 students. We had two Hispanics in our group. Um, And so we all worked together. We did everything together that summer. And so we had like this new family uh, of people of different backgrounds, some similar to mine, most not, but we helped each other, you know, if we were struggling in something. And that's how I got through the summer and I changed my study habits. And that may, and because I was disciplined from football, that's where I got the determination in order to, you know, push through it. I'm glad you, uh, you kept that footnote about football and the mm-hmm. discipline because oftentimes, um, I find I played football in high school, um, but the discipline of a team structure and being reliable and being dependable and showing up on time and you know running your sprints or whatever, I find that it makes a difference. And so sometimes um, it's a great way to introduce young people to structure yes. that they otherwise might not have cultivated. 
Uh, but more importantly, your mom is raising four children, has the toughness and uh, tenacity to, I'm sure it wasn't easy to get her kids in schools far away from home, but somehow she figures this all out. How important was your mom uh, in sort of shaping the foundation of your life and carrying you forward, especially through this experience when you now end up at Purdue? Well, I, I tell people all the time, I am my mother's son, uh, first and foremost. Uh, she was a disciplinarian. Uh, I mean, she laid the leather to us. Uh, I can I can say that for me and um, my brother that was right over me, because the other two are 10 years older. Um, so they were much older. They, they had grown out of the whippings, or whoopings, as we would say. But me and my brother, there were a number of times where we both laid across the bed with our pants down and getting getting thrashed, if you will. Um, she had a lock on the phone, so we couldn't dial the operator to call the police. You know, We wouldn't even thought about it. Um, but she had rules. And a couple of her basic rules were you're in the house before streetlights come on because nothing good happens after dark. And number two, you're going to go to school and you're going to get good grades. And so uh, when I spoke at her funeral in 2012, um, the night before, I stayed up all night trying to figure out how do I summarize her life and what she meant to me and to others. And, And it never dawned on me until that night, my mother was the epitome of unconditional love. And so no matter what I did, I can't say I did anything horrible, but I did bad things. No matter what I did, I never questioned that my mother loved me. Now, she would knock crap out of me. Um, and I didn't think that was a form of love. Don't get, don't get me wrong on that. But there was never any doubt that I couldn't go to my mother for anything and talk to her about anything, which has held true. Um, you know, her whole life that she was here on earth. And so I never wanted to disappoint her. So I had friends who were drug dealers. I never smoked a joint. Um, I drink a beer occasionally. I don't drink, I haven't, haven't drank since 1989. Um, and I could have had all, we called it reefer, but I could have had all the free marijuana I wanted, especially being a, you know, somewhat of a star athlete. And and I would tell my friends, no, I can't, you know, I'm in training, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right, football. No, we don't want you. It was like I didn't want to disappoint my mother because I knew if she found out it would have break or broken her heart. Um, so it was just the fact that she didn't take any mess off of us, uh, but we always knew where where we stood with her. And so you couple that with going to a school where football was a dominant program in the city. We had great coaches. Um, they, they, the expectations were higher than anything I'd ever participated in. You know, you had to be there on time when your foot touched the grass in the park, you better be running. You couldn't walk anywhere during practice. Your helmet always had to be fastened. Um, I mean, just little things. Uh, and my first experience was in two days going into my sophomore year, I made varsity in the fall of my freshman year, the audacity to think I could make varsity. Um, you know, an incident happened. I got the crap knocked out of me in a drill, and a coach came up to me, John Pataki, uh, who I'm still in contact with today, and he grabbed my face mask, and he asked me, you know, Taylor, what happened to you? And, and, it, and it wasn't nice like that either. And my, my lip was busted, my nose was bleeding, and I'm trying my best not to cry. And, and I don't remember what I told him, but what he said to me changed my life. He said, excuses are for losers. You just cost us the game. And I don't know if the blood stopped, but it didn't matter. The tears dried up. I got back in there and made the play. But if I sent you an email right now from my Yahoo account, which is my personal account, underneath my name in quotes, it says excuses are for losers. I was 15 years old. I've lived my life not making excuses. If I mess up, if I make a mistake, I own it and I move on. I don't dwell on it. I don't let it beat me down too much. I just I, I screwed up. 
I'll do my best not to let it happen again. And I move on. And, and that when I went to college, that was one of several things from playing on that team that I carried over that made me successful in school. To this day, at six, I, I have a two-story house. My bedroom's upstairs. I run up the stairs because when I was in high school, we had three floors, no elevators. I'd always run up the stairs to develop my legs, to help me be a better football player. I do that today out of habit. Yeah. Um, you know, so I've learned that you've got to make sacrifices physically, emotionally, You've got to have deferred gratification because it's a long season. You know, I'm excited we win game one of the preseason, but, you know, this is nothing. I'm still trying to get to November, December for the championship. So I would make those parallels, you know, in school and later on in life. So you you reached this Mm -hmm. turning point after your summer semester of your freshman year. What was the rest of the experience uh, as you like, and how did you exploit the system to help you be successful? Get an internship after your first year, and then kind of walk us through that and how you transitioned into your first uh, job. Sure. Um, exploiting the system, it was more taking advantage of what was there for the most part for everybody. Mm-hmm. So, uh, one of my classes going into the fall, you know, so it was a 12 week program in the summer. You know, my, my peers helped me a great deal get through that. But going into the fall, I had to take a statistics class. I was horrible with word problems, even in high school. And, and the first exam was nothing but word problems. And I scored like 34, I think. You know, and this whole new bell curve, grading on a on a curve was new to me when everything had been 90, 80, you know, 70, et cetera. I didn't quite comprehend that stuff. And I struggled so much those first couple of weeks that I lived in Miss Yakko's. She was a master's um, teacher. She wasn't a professor, but her husband wrote the book. He was a Ph.D. in statistics there. And her name was Miss Yakko. Every week I was in her office one to two days a week getting help to try to understand how to do these problems. Um, so I got a D on the first exam. Now this is different from the F and the D I got in the summer. This is another one, so it's continuing, right? I'm getting a little scared here. Um, but by the second part of class, it clicked because I invested the time just like running football drills, just like getting the crap knocked out of me and getting back in there and hearing excuses are for losers. Mm-hmm. I refuse to lose, you know, to this subject. And fast forward to the end of the semester, I wound up receiving a B plus. I had one of the highest grades on the final. Um, and to this day, I would swear on a stack of Bibles that because of the effort I put in with Miss Yakko in trying to understand the material, that the cutoff for an F was a 32 on that first exam. I honestly believe Ms. Yako did that not to, so I wouldn't be discouraged. She, she basically gave me a D when I should have received an F. And that taught me a lot, that people will respect you and give you an opportunity if you put the work in. Um, and so I learned a lot from that, and I carry that on to other difficult classes that I had. Uh, in four years, I had two C's. One was in my English composition class, and the other one was an advanced cost accounting class my senior year. And I just, I had a B, and I tried to study for the cumulative final, like, for three hours, mm-hmm. you know, because I was just ready to get out of school. <laughs> you know, really uh, so, uh, first summer job, I actually got teed up. Um before I went off for the summer program, I went, you know, you have to get a physical. And so we had a clinic in our neighborhood, Dr. Jackson. Um, so I went up to the clinic to get a physical and I'm in the exam room. And I can't remember this, this physician's name, um, a female physician. And she was beautiful too. Uh, so she walks in, it's late in the day. I could tell she wasn't in the best of mood. 
And she said, all right, what can I do for you? I said, well, I need a physical. She said, why do you need a physical? Uh, I said, um, I'm going off to college, you know, in a couple of weeks. And she goes, and it just, it changed everything. She says, where are you going to school? And I could tell the expectation was low. Uh, and she, she was a sister, you know. And I said, Purdue. And she set her clipboard down and goes, really? You're going to Purdue? Tell me about it. And I told her what I knew about the program. I told her a little bit more about me. And she said, I tell you what, if you do well, if you get a B average or above, um, I will have my husband hire you at the company he works for. And he worked for Standard Oil in downtown Chicago. Um, she said, here's my number. Call me in the spring and let me know how you're doing. And I want to know what your grades are. And I kept that number. I pinned it to my bulletin board. And I called her after spring break. And I said, I had a B average the first semester. And the second semester, I got straight A's. Um, and so I got a job working at Standard Oil, which changed my life. I had to work 11 to 7. I was in the computer department loading tapes on hard drives. You know, this is way back. We had these big old drives that like six feet tall, and you mount these reel-to-reel tapes. And, and I said, you know what? I told my mother, I said, you know, you don't ever have to worry about me getting good grades. I said, I'll never work a job like that again in my life. <laughs> it was holy hell, you know, falling asleep at three in the morning and standing up on the oh, toilet. It was 11 at night? At night 11 p.m. to okay. 7, the graveyard show. <laughs> and I get home and I try to stay awake and I couldn't. And I wake up because all the kids outside planned. And I had to get on the bus to ride back at 10, which is my normal bedtime. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing this again. And so because my grades were so good every year and because I was majoring in accounting, there weren't a lot of blacks in accounting back then. Um, you know, companies and, and the big firms, you know, were interested in, in talking to me. And so that's next year I worked in the receivables department for Union Carbide in downtown Chicago. My third year was my big job. I got an internship with Pete Mark Mitchell, which is now KPMG, working in audit, worked on a big international company. And then by the time I graduated, I had 11 job offers uh, from companies ranging from four of the big eight accounting firms, or only four of them now, uh, to IBM. IBM wanted to fly me to four different cities, four different you know divisions of the company, um, GE, uh, who else? Uh, can't remember now. It was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, because I had really good grades, I was African-American, I walked in Chugong. Uh, Ingersoll Ram was the other one. Um, I had an abundance of, of our, and this was during the recession, 1981, 1982. Um, so I knew I wanted to go into public accounting. And I wanted to do that primarily because my freshman year, Dr. Bell, who was over this program, would bring in black professionals to talk to his class. And it was just simply to tell you about what they do, to help educate you. Yeah. And this one brother who received his master's from Purdue worked for Ernst & Ernst, which is now Ernst & Young. And, um, and he was comical, but he was very effective in explaining, you start here, this is what you do, you get promoted the next year, you make this much money, the responsibilities you get to here, you know, and you're, you know, you're a chain smoker now. You get here, you're a chain smoker and alcoholic. You get here, you're on your second wife. I mean, just made it really fun. I remember sitting in the class saying, that's what I want to do. And so that's what prompted me to go into the accounting profession. And your first job, did you accept Arthur Anderson? Yeah, I started with, instead of uh, KPMG, I went to work because KPMG kind of took me for granted. They just knew I was going to come back and I didn't appreciate that. Um, I decided to work for Arthur Anderson and kind of a funny story. My brother, who was career Air Force, was stationed just outside of Dallas in Wichita Falls. I hadn't seen him in three years because he had been overseas. I said, well, who do, out of the big, big firms, who do I not want to work for? And Arthur Anderson was headquartered in Chicago. And I knew I was going to, my plans were to go back to Chicago after graduating and I said, I don't want to work for Arthur Anderson. They're too stiff and stuffy. They're extremely conservative. And so I, I'll tell them I want to take a job with them, but in the Dallas office. So it was a 30 below windshield in West Lafayette, Indiana. We had 10 foot snow drifts. 
it was the weekend of the Super Bowl. And the only reason I remember that because one of my teammates was playing for the 49ers that year. And I come into Dallas. It's 67 degrees and a light drizzle. And I'm like, that's a 100-degree temperature swing, you know. And I had a great interview, best interview I had. The money was really good. No state income taxes. You know, everything was new. What I didn't know is that the oil bus was only a couple of months away from 30 to $15 overnight. Um, and then my brother was working me the whole time from the moment he picked me up in downtown Dallas and drove to his house in Wichita Falls. And I said, I got back to school and I just said, why not? I can always go back to Chicago, try something new. And that was in June of 1982, I started and I moved to Houston in um, November of 96 to start my Taco Bell business. The reason I stopped pursuing corporate America is because I got tired of running into brick walls and getting bloody. Um, yeah, I know you don't know nothing about that, but... <laughs> as far as corporate America, yeah. uh, running into brick walls, I mean, yes. uh, we've all got some stories. But explore that a bit for me. What, you know, you start out at Arthur Anderson. What was your experience like over the course of that corporate career? Well, I, you know, I should have suspected that I was going to have a bit of a tough time in corporate America just based on my interviews. Uh, my interviews went really well on campus, uh, and they went really well when I got invited in offices, but you know, every now and then I get asked the question, where can we find more blacks like you? <laughs> and the first time it happened, um, it threw me. And in an instant, I had to figure out what I was going to do. Was I going to react? Was I going to be militant? Or was I going to take advantage of the situation? But I had to decide in a nanosecond whether this white person was honestly asking me where can we find you know black candidates who you know have good grades who can walk and chew gum and i would say look as good as me but i won't say that oh <laughs> um, it matters though it does matter and i tell people that all the time um and i was a lot smaller a lot more fit back then um so yeah i had a little bit more hair too but um I accepted the fact and calculated that they were being genuine, that they really wanted some help. Um, and the interesting thing was I had six other friends from the program, the BOP program, that were graduating with me who were all accountants. And one who, who married my best friend, um, Lynn, graduated in the top 5% of our class in 1982 with an accounting degree. So. Yeah, you know, I'm like, I don't understand. You know, where are you looking? You know, so we get engaged in this conversation, but that should have been a red flag for me of what I was going to potentially face because if I'm one of few, they're not going to know how to deal with me, and that's what I found. That's what I experienced at Anderson. Um, and so, how did that look? I don't get assigned to a client. And when you work in the service industry, lawyer, accountant, engineer, if you're not billable, guess what? Your job's at stake. Um, and if you're not, you know, utilized at a certain level, your job's at stake. And so I would start out doing jobs in the nonprofit sector. We didn't have much of a government practice, so I had to worry about that not early in my career, but I get put on a church or some nonprofit, you know, organization that a partner was involved with, and we're doing it pro bono. So it didn't help me, right? Um, and the thing that really bothered me, I finally get on an audit of a public utility company, electricity company in West Texas, West Texas Utilities. Got along with the staff, at the clients, you know, our team. We did a lot of cool stuff together. And, you know, my 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 senior senior staff person gave me a great evaluation. Jim Melton, our golly, I can't believe I remember Jim's name. 
And Jim was a tough evaluator, too. Nicest guy in the world, but he was really tough in reviewing your work and giving you evaluations. Got a great evaluation from him. And then I don't get reassigned to that client my second year. I'm the only one that didn't get reassigned. And I'm in my annual review with this partner. And and I said, well, you know, all my friends are getting reassigned and all that stuff. And they're like, well, what happened? He, I don't remember what he said. So I asked him same question, different way. After about the fourth, fifth time, I said, well, you know, I still don't understand because you really haven't expressed. Is it because I'm black? Oh, no. I mean, he goes, oh, no, no, no. It's like, and he said, I can't believe you'd say something like that. I said, well, I can't believe you can't explain to me something as simple as why wasn't I reassigned when the client liked me? Now, was a client lying to me and they wanted me off the engagement? I think I would have picked up on that. And quite frankly, I think. Jim or one of the other two senior people on the job would have let me know because I had that kind of relationship with them, you know, but the only thing I can point to is the color of my skin because you can't give me any other rational excuse why I wasn't reassigned to this job when everybody else in my peer group is being reassigned. So I kept running and things like that. Um, My third year, I'm doing well now. I'm on a big job. And I go in for my annual review with another partner who was highly respected in the entire United States for what he did. He was one of the top um, partners that dealt with public companies and had been around a long time, you know, had a lot of partnership units. So he had a lot of stroke. I go in, had great relationship with Joe. And he goes, um, you know, Sean, um, in the past, we've basically effed up dealing with blacks. I'm like, okay. And he went on to say some other things. And one side of me was excited that they wanted to try to rectify this. But there was another side of me that says, well, you just confirmed everything that I thought I knew, Mm -hmm. but I just couldn't prove it. Um, And so it just, just continued to manifest itself. And so at some point I just said, you know what, maybe the street... The marketplace values my abilities and my skills better than corporate America. And so just by by happenstance, connected with the right people, again, relationships um, and the franchising opportunity came about in uh, early 1996. Now, before that, you became a partner. No. So I did. I stayed with them about four and a half years. Mm -hmm. I left. And I went to work for, um, it was called IDS Financial Services, which is now Ameriprise, which was owned by American Express. So I was a financial planner, which was kind of a natural thing for me, given my accounting background. Uh, And I was a pretty good salesperson. Uh, So I did that for five years. And interestingly enough, probably 30% of my clients, I had about 150 clients, Mm -hmm. 30% of my clients were partners and managers from the Dallas office. Now, they trust me with their money, but they won't promote me, right? <laughs> so I was doing such a great job. I did some some seminars. I brought in a law firm to talk about estate planning that apparently they're like, you know what? Well, why don't you come back here and why don't you help us with business development? And that's kind of how it started out. And that became sort of, hey, how about consulting? Um, and then... Uh, after about two or three years, it's like, can you help us with this diversity thing? Uh, it wasn't called diversity then. And we got, you know, we got big recruiting problem. Now, we don't have a recruiting problem. See, came full circle now, you know, 12, 13 years later. I said, we have a retention problem. We don't have a recruiting problem. Y'all are just not looking. And it took me about a year to convince them. Um, I asked for a small budget so I can go to these different schools And, you know, buy pizza and stuff like that. And um, long and short of the story is I I went to the sources. So if I wanted to recruit black students, I went to the National Association of Black Accountants Student Organization. If I want a Hispanic, I go to Hispanic, what is it, Hispanic Business Student Association. And Asians was Asian Business Student Association. Uh, I concentrated on blacks and Hispanics. And I told them, I said, to prove you wrong, I'm going to go to schools that you recruit at, which weren't HBCUs. 
because uh, there was a stigma attached wrongfully, but there was a stigma. So I figured if I could prove them wrong going to the four primary schools that the Dallas office recruited from, then I can do whatever I wanted. So I went to UT, A&M, SMU and North Texas. Within two years, 25 percent of our new hires, we hire anywhere from 100 to 110 people a year directly out of college. Twenty five percent the next two years were black and Hispanic and about 60, 40 black Hispanic from those four schools, 98 percent from those four schools. So after I convinced them, then I got to work on retention. And that was really boring because I had to review all these evaluations every quarter. But. Um, I will say today, a number of the um, young professionals that I helped recruit uh, went on to become partners, went on to become executives uh, in other companies, went to work for clients, start their own businesses. Um, So, you know, I'm glad about that. So because I had so much success in the Dallas office, the head of HR, who was a partner, said, hey, how'd you like to do this for the entire United States? And I lit up like a firecracker. And so he started, you know, putting feelers out. And a guy that recruited me in, in 1981 uh, on campus at Purdue from Arthur Anderson, who, who I'm still friends with today, he's an older gentleman. Um, I was in Chicago for some training and he pulled me aside and he said, hey, you know, I hear so-and-so is trying to promote you for this national position. He said, you know, I think the world of you, I think it would be perfect for you. And I think it would be perfect for the firm because looking at what you've done down there, I'm still mad at you that you didn't come to Chicago because uh, we could have used you. He said, but do you mind if I give you some advice? I like, no, no. He said, do you know so-and-so? I said, yeah, yeah, good guy. Uh, and gentleman out of D.C., uh, white guy. And I have to preface that. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, he's been with the firm a long time. He's a good soldier. And he's not going anywhere because I would have replaced him. Yeah. Uh, good guy. Been there a long time. Obviously a good soldier, but was a fish out of water when it came to what I was doing in Dallas. And I mean, it just it burst my balloon. And I remember walking away from him and thinking to myself, you know what? Enough's enough. I got to go yeah. and I got to figure out where I'm valued. And that's what led to going into business yeah so how did you structure uh, your first deal I set it up as a limited partnership Uh, so my experience at Arthur Anderson really paid off for me um, in getting the deal done my experience as a financial planner helped me once the deal was done dealing with stuff around employee stuff so um, I spent um, a couple of months, about six weeks, putting together my business plan, which for me was good because it helped me understand the industry. Um, and I ran all kind of spreadsheets. You know, Excel wasn't what it is today. Um, in fact, I didn't even want to do fast food. Uh, you know, when, when my buddy told me about the opportunity, I said to myself, I didn't say it to him, with fast food, I'm like, man, I wear tailor-made suits. My office is on the 52nd floor, the highest, tallest building in town. I work for this prestigious firm. And I started looking at the numbers. I went, ooh, fast food. Yeah. All right, let's do it. He wound up doing something else and I stuck with it. And um, but, but my training as an auditor and as a consultant helped me you know, kind of peel back the onion and get to the core things and identify where I could make a difference in these existing um, restaurants. Um, and so I put together this plan and I mean, I'm pounding the pavement. I'm talking to any and everyone, you know, cause I had to raise a million and a half dollars in equity. Um, it was about a 11, $12 million deal. Uh, and, and this is 1996. That was a real deal back then, believe it or not. Um, and I had never raised capital. I'd never run a business. You know, I had a decent sized staff working for me, but that was about it. But I was a good salesman. And so long and short of the story, um, I get introduced to a gentleman out of California who had just created a, um, a lending company for franchisees specifically. And he also created an equity company. 
to invest alongside of them to help them do big deals. So I kind of fit the, his fun category. And we met out near the airport. Um, he was blown away by my business plan and really flew from California just so he could meet me and, you know, pass the smell test, if you will. Yeah. And we were having lunch and 30 minutes into lunch, he stuck his hand out and he said, do we have a deal in principle? And I said, if you're as competitive as you say you are on your, your loan terms, mm -hmm. then yes. And, you know, I want your equity and I'll do your debt. We'll do it all at one time. So within 30 minutes, um, I secured, extended. I secured over $10 million in capital. I'm going to ask. <laughs> question I think I know the answer to, but obviously he must have vetted you ahead of time. And what about, because it's a real thing that I think yeah. a lot of brothers are, are, are maybe at the precipice of trying to make that move, have never raised capital, have never really, you know, ran off a balance sheet. They've never had to make payroll. Right. And uh, a lot of times it's hard just getting the meeting. So to get the sit down, and so while you might not think you've been vetted, the vetting was done. Whether by oh, I'm sure it was, yeah. Or so on and so forth. Yeah. So, um, how important was it that you had the right background, or, or what about the vetting process, or what what transpired in that thirty minutes that leads this guy to say, "Hey," and I I don't know that he's been used to handing over that kind of money to brothers all over the place and he makes his decision within this short window uh the vetting i don't know the person that connected us was a loan officer at citibank uh bonnie sampson uh, so i had a lot of interaction with bonnie because they were looking at trying to do the debt the challenge i had was raising the equity i had like one hundred ten thousand dollars to put in which was everything. That was all the chips. Uh, and that was a long way from one and a half million dollars. And actually the number was bigger than that because Taco Bell was pushing for initially 25% equity and they came down to 20. We ultimately got them down to 15, 15%. And so, um, you know, I'm guessing I made an impression on Bonnie. She had flown to Houston, actually to Dallas. I was living in Dallas at the time and we met um, you know, talked a lot. And I would say because of my background, my professional background, um, that gave me some credibility. Um, so um, I knew what I was talking about, although I'd never run a restaurant, let alone an enterprise. Mm -hmm. I understood how businesses work because of my accounting slash financial background. And because I was a consultant, I knew how to fix things. Mm -hmm. Even though I had never fixed them, I could write a nice report. Yeah. <laughs> so by the time he came out to meet, it felt more like he was just kind of validating what he had been told and what he had read. Because he, he made a comment about my business plan that just kind of blew me out the water. Um, I mean, at his peak, he had lent close to a billion dollars, and this was back in the late 90s. Um, you didn't hear that number thrown around a lot, nah. you know. Uh, and, but he was just extremely impressed with the thoroughness of, of my business plan. And so, um, you know, it was a matter of finalizing the negotiations with Taco Bell to lock it down because I was competing mm -hmm. with existing franchisees. Um, I stress relationships a lot. Um, because people can vouch for you or they can destroy you. And because of the competition that I was in, I had to figure out a way to separate myself from the existing, because they had a leg up on me. They were existing operators. They had infrastructure and all that stuff. So this was a competitive bid. Yes. Yes. It was for 21 restaurants in Houston, because this was an all-corporate uh, market at one point with about 90, 95 restaurants. And I was competing against, at that time, the largest franchisee in the system who had 70 stores out of Austin, Texas, and had the highest average sales volume per store, corporate or franchise. They were flush, family business for a long time, second generation. And so 
to be honest, um, one of the things that I had to grapple with was, am I going to be treated fairly because of the color of my skin? Am I going to be given the credit that I deserve in this process? Forget the fact that I'm competing against somebody that's been in this business a long time. Am I going to be evaluated on merit or am I going to be discounted? So I took out an insurance policy. An insurance policy was um, there was an executive in Dallas ran a, at the time, I think the largest real estate firm in the world who was best friends with the chairman and CEO of PepsiCo. PepsiCo owned Taco Bell. And so I knew him through a community work I'd done in Dallas. I called him up, asked him if I could meet with him for 30 minutes. Yes. And he was real matter of fact, yeah. no BS kind of guy. Walk in the office, even before I sit down, he goes, what can I do for you? I told him briefly, and my ask was, John Doe, would you write me a letter of recommendation? Absolutely. He said, why do you want to let Rella? I said, well, you and Roger and Rico are very close friends. Um, and I know what Roger's going to do with the letter. He's going to send it to Taco Bell. And all I need is some air cover. I said, I need to make sure I don't get screwed. I'm, I'm willing to lose for all the right reasons. But I, I don't want to lose because I'm black. I want to lose because I've not been an operator before. And I've demonstrated that I can do this. He said, good enough. This is letters about that long. And it was a shot heard around Taco Bell. Uh, and the only reason I know that because the deal person I was working with called me up and was livid. What's this letter I hear about? Never saw the letter. What's this letter? And I just let her go on. And when she stopped, I said, would you like a copy of the letter? And it was like silence. I said, okay, well, let me hang up so I can go fax it to you. So this is before you could do attachments and emails and stuff. And I faxed. I said, call me back when you get it. And she called me back. She goes, wow, this some letter. Mm. And it went to the president of Taco Bell. They had a Taco Bell, went to the CFO, CFO to the person that was running all the, all the selling processes. And I wound up getting a deal. Uh, I had a higher bid. And they flew me out. Well, I flew out, met with them. And they said, you know, we've been looking at this portfolio of stores and, you know, we want to set you up for success. So we're going to take some of these dog stores out and put some better stores in. Mm -hmm. All because of that letter. Because now they're dealing with not their boss or their bosses, but their boss's boss's boss. If this thing goes sideways, that was my insurance policy. And that at that time, from a business standpoint, was was the biggest confirmation of how important relationships and you never know when you're going to call on somebody to give you a hand up. Yeah, and and I was so I closed on the deal. Actually, I closed the day before my 36th birthday, December 20th. My birthday is December 21st and was off to the races. And 11 years later, uh, I sold at age 46 for a little bit of money mm -hmm. and retired. <laughs> Great story. Fantastic. Thank you. you have this business plan, but I can only imagine uh, for most people, year one doesn't necessarily correspond with that business plan. So what's that transition like going from theory to practice the first time now you run in this <laughs> enterprise? I think I heard you say earlier before we, we, we um, started on, got on camera, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. That's when I learned that. I didn't know what I didn't know. For example, I didn't know that I was going to get a letter from the state of Texas saying I have to put down a deposit of $50,000 for sales tax. I didn't know when I went to switch... Um, the electricity for 19 stores from Taco Bell to my company, Family Eats, uh, that they wanted a hundred and something thousand dollar deposit. I didn't know that water wanted a deposit, et cetera, et cetera. The small ones I could handle, but you know, five, six figures. I had $67,000 in working capital when I started. And that was a loan that I negotiated with like a 2% interest rate with the lender who financed the deal. 
the day we close on the loan because it dawned on me I needed some working capital. And you uh, put all the chips in. All, all in. And, 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 and that, you know, being an entrepreneur, I'm yeah. on the move. And they're like, sure, no problem. I said, well, how long? I said, just two months. You know, this is a cash flow business. And I'm, I'm banking that will cash flow, right? <laughs> I think back, that's the first time I thought about that before. <laughs> Could have gone the other way. Mm-hmm. Um, we wound up paying a loan off on time. And um, the deposits, I talked to somebody at the state controller's office. They said, well, can I pay in installments? I can, because this was like six months into the business. I said, well, I can pay 25 now, but can I pay the other 25 and six? Sure. I never paid the other 25. Um, and with the electricity, I had a big sister uh, in Dallas that worked for um, Texas Utilities, was a senior executive with them. And I called her and I said, can you help me? with somebody at Houston Power and Light. And she put it in the car and got it waived. Relationships. Relationships. Except for the sales tax thing. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of, yeah. yeah. I went back to my project days, you know, and just, if I get caught, I get caught, you know, but I would have been, been able to pay that back then. But to answer your question directly, once I got out of the forest, got accounting systems set up and hired the right person to be my controller. Um, it was literally just grinding. Um, you know, working, be honest with you, working the hours I've been working since high school, playing football. So all that, you know, it just rolled forward. When I'm in, in college, you know, I studied in the library because I get distracted easy. I didn't study in the dorm. I stayed in the dorm all four years. Not only did I study in the library, but I studied in the engineering library. Not only did I study in the engineering library, I studied underground, either in the mezzanine, which is one level down, or the basement, which was two. And why did I do that? There were no windows. So I had no sense of time. And I, didn't, I never wore a watch in, in, uh, in college. And we didn't have phones. So I didn't have that to deal with, which is a big distraction. So I go and I'd study for three, four, five hours at a lick. Um, I usually would go after dinner. I'd take a 30 minute nap after dinner and I'd get to the library about 6, 6.30 and I'd get back to the room 10, 11 o'clock at night. Because uh, I didn't like studying on the weekend. I didn't like studying Friday and Saturday. And then Sunday was my heavy study day um, where I'd go after lunch and, you know, who knows how long I'd stay. You know, if I was sleepy, I'd fall asleep in the cubicle at the library. So that transferred into uh, my Taco Bell business. So if I, we were open to wee hours of the morning, I'd go in my stores at 11 o'clock midnight, sometimes wouldn't get home till five. So, um, but again, it was all set on, when I got in the Taco Bell business, my goal was not to be rich. My goal was to be wealthy. And the difference is I can make a nice income, pay half that in taxes, which is very inefficient way to accumulate capital to set you up down the road. I wanted to create value in assets so that I could do a transaction, whether it would be a refi to take capital off the table, uh, sell shares in the business, uh, or just sell the business outright, which I ultimately did uh, for a lot more money than I paid for. Um, so, um, you know. People often, what's the biggest thing to help you be successful? You got to work hard. Got to be diligent, but you have to put the hours in. There's just no shortcut around it. I don't know anybody who, other than having generational money, um, that became wealthy and didn't put in long hours. Were there, was, obviously there was some, and I'm, I'm keeping up with our time, I know that there had to be some knowledge deficit about a business that you just hadn't been in. In addition to working hard and really putting in the hours, how did you make up that gap? And did you at any point bring in partners who had other skill sets? Well, I started out with a partner who was the operational partner, mm-hmm. and I'll just leave it at that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we parted ways not uh, on favorable terms uh, at my um, at my doing Um, so remember I'll go back to Miss Yakko and my statistics class so 
what I learned in football, what I learned in college is there's a lot I don't know, but I learned how to go to people to ask the right questions. And it became a thing of not necessarily asking the right question. It was asking the next best question because there's never 100 percent right. Just hopefully you can continue to ask the next best thing. And so if there was something that I didn't understand, so like even in my due diligence phase of buying the Taco Bells, I called up franchisees out of the blue. Hey, can I come visit your operations? I flew up to Ohio, one of the largest Taco Bell franchisees who had bought 52 stores a year earlier and spent two days with them. You know, we shared financial information. So wait, how did you do what? And, you know, you bring this back, you know, and then Taco Bell did stuff. When we had our conferences, they had training sessions that would help you. You can bring that back as well. But if it was something I didn't know, I'm never too proud to ask, to ask somebody. Um, and I still do that to to this day. You sell out at 46, so you spent the last 14 years doing something. What's that time been like? First six years, I did a lot of nonprofit on boards, mm-hmm. um, Houston Community College, um, YMCA, uh, Greater Houston, uh, was really involved with the Boys and Girls Club for a long time uh, because Taco Bell, that was their only national charity. And so I got involved, developed some great relationships with that. I've stayed active at Purdue with the business school, but more importantly with the business opportunity program, the BOP program. Um, And then I had two kids coming up through high school who were both student athletes. And so I was very involved with them. So when I was running my business that I did two things, I worked and family, Yeah. you know, so I was very involved in my kids' lives and their sports and their school. Um, So I didn't sacrifice that at the expense of trying to make money. Now, could I have spent more time? Sure. Um, But I carved out because I was in control of my, my day, I could carve out, which meant guess what? I may have to go back to the office. I may have to do some work at home, which I try not to work at home. It's just, it's like when I got back to the dorm after, I want to see a book. So I'll do what I need to do so I can leave it here. And when I get home, I can be home. But there were times when I'd have to go in my office and do some work very few times. Um, So, you know, my, my big push was, you know, just donating my time back to the community and education, and and now healthcare. I'm on the board of uh, Memorial Hermann. Um, and then I got into the Zaxby's business in 2013. That was a big mistake. Um, I won't go into that, but uh, and then in 2011, uh, a friend of mine invited me to be one of the uh, investors in acquiring the Houston Astros. Yeah. So small little, small little thing. Yeah. Major League Baseball. I should wear my ring. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, but, uh, yeah, Jim Crane invited me to, uh, and his, the guy who's his general counsel, uh, who's a friend of mine as well, invited me to, uh, consider being an investor. Um, and that happened in 2011. I sold my interest back in 17. I, I did get my ring and, and also a watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I stay involved yeah. uh, as an advisor, which really I haven't done much on that side. But um, and that was that that purely uh, that purely was a um, uh, a branding thing for me mm-hmm. um, in that there aren't very many minorities of any type that are in ownership in any of the professional sports. Um, So that made me rather unique. And that uniqueness, I was always thinking in terms of how does that give me access? And how does that help me develop relationships that I ordinarily would not have access to? And so um, that's how that happened. What's on the horizon and some closing remarks? Um, Horizon, uh, I just invested in a beverage distribution company of a young man who used to be a waiter at a country club I used to belong to, who always treated us great and always treated him great. In fact, when he had his first son, who works in the business today, uh, 21, 22 years later, we, we gave him some clothes that, you know, we have for our son when he grew up and toys and 
And he was so proud when he bought this business two and a half years ago, he reached out to me uh, a year ago. And I mean, he was just on me. Come by and check it out. Come and come to find out it's like four miles from my house in uh, the distribution center. And I met with him. And uh, after an hour and a half conversation, I said, would you guys be interested in me investing in the business? And they go, we we're hoping you'd say that. <laughs> and so um, uh, it was owner finance, not the greatest term. So I, I took out the, the financing, uh, gave them another loan, very friendly loan, interest only, low interest rate. Uh, and I put some equity in. And, um, and so what I'm bringing to the table is business experience. They're great salespeople, great route people. But the business acumen is not quite there. So today, actually today, we're upgrading the computer system um, and um, we're negotiating new terms for the warehouse space and having that redone. Um, we are sort of reestablishing, if you will, relationships with the two largest suppliers because everything has been supplier down. It's like, nope, them days are over. You know, we're going to dictate and here's what we want. It ain't about what you want. Here's what we we're the customer. So we're going to flip the script on you. We've already had meetings with both of them. And interestingly enough, it's been very positive. Uh, so there are potentially opportunities to expand into other cities um, and take on new types of businesses with them, which is I'm, I'm a scale guy. Yeah. You know, I didn't want a restaurant because I want a job. I want to create wealth. Um, and these guys weren't even thinking, oh, we want to make more money. No, 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 no. You want to create value because uh, value has tax preference yeah. and you can't work enough hours in the day to be able to, to make that an income. So that's what I'm working on right now. And your quote is whiners or losers? Excuses are for losers. Excuses are for losers, as you've heard. My guest today has been Sean Taylor, serial entrepreneur. You've been listening to my brother podcast. Whenever you're facing doubt, brother's gonna work it out.